text for this morning's sermon is Luke 5, uh, chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. Luke 5, 3, excuse me, Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. We uh, turn back to the book of Luke and continue looking at uh, the ministry of John the Baptist and how he prepares the way and uh, uh, really sets the, the scene here for uh, Jesus to come on the scene. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I ask that uh, you grant us wisdom as we look at these words of yours that present Christ's ministry to us. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, we would have the appropriate response to this one who's so much greater than John the Baptist. Father, I pray that you would do your work in the hearts of the people here in my heart. Father, I ask that you would be glorified. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As a parent, I think one of the most difficult aspects of my job, and I think if you ask almost any parent, they would agree that being cons- consistent, at least with little children, with discipline, is the hardest thing. I know uh, for myself, that is uh, the biggest challenge, I think, is I can get it right in one moment, but consistency is so important uh, for our children to really be trained uh, in the way that we want to bring them up. I remember as a child, uh, my parents threatening me with uh, different things like, you're not going to get to play your soccer game if you don't go clean your room. I knew that that threat wasn't a real threat because I think my dad was just as excited about soccer as I was, and there's no way I was ever going to miss a soccer game or any game. And so the threat wasn't effective uh, in my life because I kind of knew it wasn't going to come true. I know my children... Uh, could say 
that they probably know when we mean business and when we don't. Uh, the problem is, is I think because of human inconsistency, we can tend to make the mistake that and and not trust God's warnings, not trust God's threats as if He is a mere human who doesn't really mean what He says. I think the tone of this passage uh, we, that we have before us might be missed if we're not careful in looking at it. Uh, Romans 2, 20, or 2, verse 3, is one of the texts that stands out in my mind. This idea of taking God for granted when it comes uh, to His kindness especially. Here's what, here's what uh, Paul says in Romans 2. Do you suppose, O oh man, that you who judge those who practice such things, yet you do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume upon the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, Paul's in the middle of the argument saying all men are under sin. If there's a man that's going to judge other men in their sin and pretend like he doesn't struggle with those same idolatrous sins, then he's a fool. And the person might be thinking, well, God, God's okay with me because look, my life's going pretty good. Nothing, you know, no lightning bolt has hit me yet. And Paul's saying, don't presume upon the riches of God's kindness and patience with you because this time frame is meant to be given to you out of the love and kindness of God to give you time to repent and to turn from your sins. And he's saying, some of you don't really believe that day of judgment is coming. And so you don't repent. You fool yourselves that God is okay with you in your unrepentance. All the while, more wrath and more wrath is being stored up on your head that one day will be released. It's the danger of what we can do and how we can coddle our unrepentance as though it's okay. We saw last week that John's ministry began, his preaching began, and it was meant to lead to repentance and faith for the forgiveness of sins. And everybody knew John was the prophet in Israel now. For over 400 years, there has been no prophet, and now John's powerfully on the scene. Everyone's coming out to him. But to the crowds we saw last week, here's what he said in verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, 
You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire." So the baptism John was offering was a baptism. It was a sign, a visible sign given to those who are repenting in their heart and turning to God for salvation, wanting to turn from their sins. They're broken over their sins, wanting to turn for God. And so the crowds come out, and we're told from uh, Matthew that the uh, Sadducees and Pharisees and the scribes came out. And John looked at them and said, you broods of vipers, you're children of the snake. Why are you coming for the baptism of repentance when there's no fruit of repentance in your life? You're, you, those of you who are tax collectors, you're cheating people out of, out of their taxes to put more money in your own pocket. Those of you who are soldiers are using your authority to get bribes and put more money in your pocket. Because they're saying, what should, well, what do we do then? If you're not going to give us this baptism because we don't show fruits, what would the fruits look like? And so John says, don't make the argument saying, oh, we grew up as the people of God, we're Israelites. We have Abraham as our father. He said, don't do that. If God wants children, He doesn't need you. He can make children out of these stones. Don't make the argument that you're getting in and your unrepentance is okay because you're an Israelite. Man, this ministry is kind of starting out a little tough, especially on the Israelites. He says the lack, the axe is at the root of the tree. His wrath is ready to fall. You're about to be cut down. Repent and be saved. Repent and look to the Christ that He's pointing to. He's the forerunner. And that brings us up to verse 15. Now, John's ministry must have had so much authority that people thought this, this might be the Christ. We don't know exactly how the authority looked. I mean, just from reading this text, we can see that he's speaking as a prophet, warning of God's judgment, but also offering the kindness of God and in the reminder that repentance is needed. And so in verse 15 we read, as the people were in expectation, the pump was primed in Israel waiting for their Savior. They knew that the time was near. If you remember, it would have been 30 years earlier the pump was primed even then as Herod was trying to figure out where the Christ was going to be born so that uh, he could have him killed. He didn't want any other king in his territory. And so the people were in expectation, verse 15, 
and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. Maybe this is the one we've been waiting for. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but... So he's making a comparison between him and Christ. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So, what is John getting at here? I think we read this. I mean, it's just a, it's just a sentence. And it's, and it's easy to read it and not feel what uh, they, they would call in preaching class the ethos or the pathos of the text, the tone of the text. They're looking at John saying, is he the Christ? Is he the Christ? And he says, oh, there's one mightier than I who is coming. Now, I don't think he means physical strength. I don't think that's what he's getting at. They're impressed by John's authority. And he's saying, one with so much more authority than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. Now, what does this mean? So, Palestinian teachers in the day were not paid by their pupils. Rather, what the culture uh, demanded is that whatever a slave would do for his masters, his master, the pupils ought to do for the teacher except untie their sandals. A pupil so to look up to their teacher and to honor them, just like a slave would a master. But you didn't have to be so go so low as to untie the strap of a shoe. Now, you've all been told what it must have been like with sandals and not pavement roads and how dirty the feet of the people would have been in those days. But they wouldn't even allow Jewish slaves to do that job. Only a Gentile slave could go that low to have to unstrap the sandals of the shoes. And do you get what John has just said? He's just said, I'm not worthy to touch the strap of the sandal of his on his foot. He's not worthy. <laughs> you know, what would this look like uh, modern day? Uh, one, one of the commentators, Bach, he said, he said, this is like a CEO, a big CEO uh, in our day, saying that he's not worthy to take out Jesus' garbage. That garbage would have so much glory if it was Jesus' garbage that I can't even get that close to it. Is John the Christ? Is this the one? And John says, you don't have a clue 
<laughs> I'm not the Christ. The one coming after me has so much more authority that you can't imagine. He says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So what's the Holy Spirit in fire? What, what, what does this mean? I think it means two things. One, the blessing of the promise to Abraham culminates in the giving of the Spirit of God to the people of God. And John has been preaching and it's been bringing about repentance and people trusting in God and for forgiveness for sins, but John can't give the Holy Spirit. Only Christ can give the greatest gift in the entire world, God Himself living inside of you. Moment by moment, convicting of sin, taking you to the cross, showing you your Savior, strengthening you on the inside, giving you eyes to understand your Bible when you used to not be able to understand your Bible. Christ brings the Holy Spirit and fire. Well, fire has this idea of purging, cleaning, purifying. So for those who are saved, the Holy Spirit comes and begins to purify our lives in a sense, with fire, that's true. And there may be some of that meaning here in the text, but I think in the context, what he's saying is this. Christ's ministry is going to bring blessing and it's going to bring judgment. The fire of judgment. And the reason why I think that is because what he says in verse 17 his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he'll burn with unquenchable fire. What's a winnowing fork? The winnowing fork is in his hand. This one that's mightier than I that's coming that's bringing the Holy Spirit and Fire, the winnowing fork is in his hand. This is when uh, the wheat crop would be brought in and the heads of grain would be knocked off the wheat. It would be treaded upon. And then they would go up on a high point where it was really windy and they would take like a pitchfork or like a shovel and they would throw it up in the air and the chaff would blow to the side and the grain would fall straight down. So he's saying there's one coming. You think I have authority? You think my preaching stuff? You think I'm scary? There's one coming. He's got a winnowing fork in his hand and he's going to gather the wheat into the barn and he's going to burn the chaff in the furnace. Unquenchable fire. Whoa, 
the one who's coming has more authority than John. In fact, the one who's coming, every human being will stand before at the end of their life. At Judgment Day, they will face Him. The one who has the fork. The one who throws it into the air. And then, just to put a little Old Testament behind this idea of chaff burning, just to help our imaginations uh, comprehend this authority and the, I think the rightful awe we ought to have with God. Psalm 1-4, the wicked are not like those that are planted by streams of living water, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Jeremiah 15-7, I have winnowed them with the winnowing fork in the gates of the land. I've bereaved them. I've destroyed my people. They did not turn from their ways. They didn't repent. I've made their widows more than the number of the sand of the sea. I've brought against the mothers of young men a destroyer at noonday. I've made anguish and terror fall upon them suddenly. This is not something new to Israel. As they remained unrepentant, the judgment of God would come down on them. In Joel chapter 3, verse 11, here's what we read. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations. Gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. So, so imagine. Come on, gather nations. Bring your warriors. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And there I will sit as judge. Or th- for, the, for there I'll sit to judge uh, all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their evil is great. You have this picture of saying, all right, man, you come into this valley. I will be judge. I got my sickle in my hand. I'm going to gather in the crop. I'm going to fill up the wine press, throw grapes in there, and I'm going to tromp it down. He's ready to judge. They're full. All their sins, all their idolatry is full, ready to be judged uh, by God. And then in verse 14, it says, Multitudes of multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw from their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So the Bible, with the most vivid language, shows a harvester ready to just burn up the chaff and bring in the wheat, to tread the winepress of the wrath of God, or to give refuge to His people. And in the chapter before that, in Joel 2, verse 12, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to Me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, 
and rend your hearts, which means tear them in two, and not your garments. He was sick of them pretending like they're repenting. Oh, I'm so sinful. I'm going to tear my clothes. God cares about the hearts of men. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. This is our God. There will be the final day. And there will be two groups of people. Those who have rend their hearts in two, broken over their sin, and a big group, some will just be flat out unbelievers, but a big group of them will be religious people, thinking they're getting in because their father's Abraham, or they grew up in the church, or they think God is like their parent who makes threats but doesn't make do on those threats. And then in verse 18, I love this. The Bible brings everything into perspective. You might be feeling like, whoa, man, hellfire and brimstone today, Sam. (laughs) You're really bringing it. Yeah, well, look at verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. This is good news preaching. It is good news preaching. Let me tell you something. Heaven would not be heaven if all the evil in this world was not judged and done away with and destroyed. We long for justice. We long for a good judge that's actually going to judge rightly. And the reason why we can call this good news and John can call this good news is because Christ came to pay the price for your sins so that God can judge you not guilty. Because Christ was not guilty. And He paid for, under the wrath of God, your sins and gifts to you His perfect righteousness. It's good news. It is not loving to present a God that does not exist to people. We need to tell them who the one mightier than John is. I'm sorry, but most people don't present Jesus the way John the Baptist presents Jesus. In all this authority with a winnowing fork in his hand. But this is our glorious Savior and Judge. How will we respond to him? Look at how Herod responded, verse 19. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all. He locked up John in prison. So the king of the land, the Tetrarch of the land, ran into John the Baptist. You want to know what John the Baptist did? 
to the big, powerful king of his day? He pointed a finger in his face and said the same thing he said to the tax collector. He said to Herod, you need to repent. You've divorced your wife. And your brother's wife divorced him. And then you married her. That's sin and God hates it. And you're the king over Israel, the supposed king, and he's saying, repent. Gospel ministry says the same thing to the beggar on the street that needs to repent. And the president or the king, true good news ministry, true love is telling people the reality that the spiritual reality they're in, and then points them to Christ. But Herod, like so many, hate the message. Herod did what he could do. He took the power he had. He had John thrown in prison, and he had John's head cut off. That was his response to good news preaching. He didn't want to hear it. That's not the only response, though. If you read on, in verse 21, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. We're going to look at Jesus' baptism next week in detail. But here's what I want you to see. Many John gave the baptism of repentance to. Herod responded one way. Many of the people repented and took his baptism that he was offering. And I'm just going to give you a little peek into next week. We have the Trinity at work as the Holy Spirit comes down on the Son of God and the Father speaks out of heaven. And when the Father says, you are my Son with whom I am well pleased, this is the biggest shocker all the way from Genesis up to this day. All these people you think are finally going to be man's Savior. Whether it's Noah or Abraham or David. And God speaks out of heaven and He says, this is the one I'm happy with. By the way, He will not be happy with you outside of Christ. There's only one whom God said, that's the one I'm pleased with. The good news is, is that's the substitute that God sent in His love for you and I so that we can be saved. So that He can take our place. So I want to show you five things I think we can learn or see about the nature of Jesus' ministry so that we can properly respond to this Christ. First, I want you to see the nature of Christ's supremacy and repent. John the Baptist is the greatest prophet that ever lived, according to Jesus. 
Up up to that point, obviously Christ is the greater one. John says that. But John, in the best illustrative way he could in his culture, says he's so much more supreme than me. Now here's the deal. Here's what I want you to think about. If John's response to Christ is in such utter humility and awe of Christ, then we ought to have the same disposition towards Christ, don't you think? We learn from John how we ought to view our Lord and Savior. We don't rub up to Jesus' shoulders like, oh, here's my equal, and we're kind of doing this thing on earth, trying to... No, that's not how John describes his ministry in comparison to Jesus' ministry, even though Jesus ties John's ministry to his. John's the one pointing to Christ's ministry, but the way our disposition is we point people to Him. We don't point Him to ourselves. We point people to Christ, the greater One. Let's learn from John's humility. Christ is totally supreme. See the dual nature of Jesus' ministry in repent. The Bible presents Christ to us as the coming Savior and the coming Judge. It's a dual ministry. Here's what uh, Robert Stein says. The coming of the Messianic age with a twofold dimension of blessing and judgment is evident. Judgment is about to come. The divine axe is about to strike. God's wrath is about to fall on unrepentant Israel. Those who did, did not respond to the preaching of John and the coming of the Messiah would be consumed with the divine fire just as the chaff was burned up. For Luke and his readers, this can now be seen in part by what happened to Israel. Judgment indeed came upon Israel, for they were excluded from the banquet in Luke 14.24. And the vineyard was given to others in Luke 20.16. Unfortunately, we see so many of the, uh, the Israelites not respond to John's call for repentance, and therefore judgment uh, comes upon them. The difference between John and Jesus ultimately is the difference between a prophet and a judge. John is a prophet. John, uh, Jesus is also a prophet, but John is not the judge. We need to see that Christ is our Savior and the one with whom we'll stand before. Three, we need to see the nature of Jesus' baptism and repent. John's baptism was given after he preached and people repented and trusted by faith in God for forgiveness of sins. That's who John gave his baptism to. Very similar to Jesus' baptism ministry. I'm not talking about his baptism where he was baptized. I'm talking about those who are to be baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's the only difference. Just like John's, 
once Christ is preached and people repent and trust by faith in Christ for forgiveness of sins, Jesus then indwells all of His followers with His Spirit. With the Holy Spirit. That's the difference. They both have water baptism at the end of them as the sign of what's been done. The difference is, is those who believe and trust in Christ are filled with the Holy Spirit and then they are immersed in water and baptized as a sign of what was done for them. Christ's baptism is so similar and yet ultimately greater because the Holy Spirit comes inside of those who trust in Him. Uh, Four, see the nature of of a Christ-centered ministry and repent. (laughs) You know, this is interesting. If you took a modern-day PR consultant and, and you examine John's ministry, who, which was very short, he got his head chopped off pretty quick. People would say, "All right, let's let's find a new strategy here." I don't think John did it very good, and yet John did it just as God had asked him to do it. A Christ-centered ministry doesn't view its success by how many people are happy with you or even whether the authorities are happy with you. Now you can get in trouble with the authorities and you can have a lot of people upset with you for being an idiot and for bringing all sorts of of condemnation on yourself that has nothing to do with preaching the good news of the Gospel. But, John's ministry was successful. It was God's plan for him. You and I don't know or don't naturally measure ministries that way. We don't naturally measure ministries by, (laughs) you know, the successful ones are the ones that maybe die out really quick or are rejected. And yet faithfulness to the message is what God's called us to do. That is love. He was loving Herod as he warned him to repent of of his sins. Uh, Fifth, see the nature of true conversion and repent. Um, I want to read what Stein says because I don't think I can say it better. Here's what he says. Within this account, Luke sought to demonstrate to Theophilus. Remember, Luke wrote this letter to Theophilus so that he can be sure concerning the things of Christ that participation in God's kingdom involves not a rite of baptism and not a profession of repentance, but a life that manifests a true conversion. Baptism in itself is insufficient for salvation. Luke clearly rejected a sacramentalist interpretation that thinks the rite of baptism in and of itself brings about the forgiveness of sins. One dare not depend for salvation upon the rite of such baptism. A family relationship, a person 
ought not rely their uh, relationship with God on. Whether involving a claim to be the offspring of Abraham or being born of godly parents or a confession of repentance. You can't trust in your baptism for salvation. You can't trust in the family you were born into for salvation. You can't trust in going to church every Sunday for your salvation. And you can't trust in the confession of your repentance. One must bear evidence of good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its fruit, Jesus teaches in Luke 6.44. And John is preaching to the brood of vipers. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Now listen to me. Your repentance isn't the grounds of your salvation. God doesn't look at your repentance and say, that was impressive. I'm going to count that worthy of salvation. Godly repentance and faith. And let me just remind you what repentance is. Repentance means turning. So you're living your life selfishly for yourself. Just whatever the desires of your flesh are, you're giving to yourself. You're building your own kingdom, doing it your way, walking like this, and then you hear Christ preached and God's love for you in Christ and that your only hope is in Him and you begin to recognize, look at this awful rebellion I've had against my Creator. Father, forgive me. That's the way of life. So you turn around in faith to trust in Him. To turn from the heart desiring God's will for your life. It doesn't mean you're perfect. But it does mean you're continuing on in faith and repentance. So here's the, here's the key. Faith and repentance is not the ground of your salvation. Jesus' blood is. God will look and say, not guilty, justified, welcome into my kingdom only because of what Jesus paid on the cross for you. The life He lived, He gave you in Christ. That's the only reason God will say, not guilty. It had nothing to do with your good works. It had nothing to do with your effort. It had everything to do with what Jesus did on the cross. But, we're told in the Scriptures that faith, saving faith, and saving repentance is a gift of the Holy Spirit, a miracle that God works in the heart when the Gospel is preached that actually bears fruit. So, the repentance is the fruit of the heart that's been made alive. Of the heart of faith that's looking and clinging to Christ. So let me just be real honest with you. It is really easy to look religious, to come to church, to grow up in a Christian home, and not really love Jesus, to not really be broken over your sin, and to not really cling to Him by faith. You might just intellectually say, yeah, I believe all that stuff. If that's you, Christ will come. He will throw you up in the air 
and you'll be blown away. This is the good news John preached. How are you going to respond to Christ, your Savior? My prayer is, is that God would break you down in your heart. That you'd feel sorry for living a life of idolatry rather than glorifying Him. Living the life you want to live rather than asking God, what's the life you want me to live? The good news is, is salvation is offered to every one of you. All you need to do is be broken. Lose all hope in and of yourself. Turn to the Savior and cling to Him by faith. It's the good news. It's what John preached. It's what he sent us to preach. God's kindness and patience is on you right now because judgment day is not here yet. This is the time where we can turn and be saved and the steadfast love of God can can be a reality in our life and we can be brought in to the family of God. My prayer is you know Christ as your brother and His Father as your Father and you're in His family that you don't experience Him as the judge that will make you pay for your sins since you weren't willing to turn to Him for forgiveness for your sins. Cling to Him. I don't know. I wish I could plead better. But that's what the Bible told me to do. To be an ambassador. God making His appeal through us. Cling to your only hope. Father, use Your Word. Use Your Word to show, to just bring light into the spiritual reality of those people's lives in this room. Father, anyone who's been convicted of coddling their sin, living in a frame of unrepentance, a time of unrepentance, Lord, I pray that You would give them the grace of of fearing You and clinging to You and trusting in Christ. Thank You, Lord. Thank You for sending Christ. While we were sinners, You sent Christ to us. That's why we sing Your praises. In Jesus' name, Amen.